This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Our real science sessions focus on connecting with researchers, educators, and industry professionals from all walks of life that make scientific discovery and innovation possible. We talk about their work, their passions, their pitfalls, why they got into science in the first place, and where the road lies ahead. Today, I'm speaking with Gwen Randolph, a professor of pathology and immunology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She recently presented on a webinar with us in our immunophysiology and inflammation series on trafficking of microbial signals from the intestine. During the webinar process, Gwen shared some personal experiences and passions about being a woman in science, and we knew that she'd be the perfect guest to have on our Real Science podcast. So here today to help you all get to know her as a scientist, but also as a woman in the field, we welcome Gwen. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be here. So happy to have you. And I'm just going to jump right into the questions, if that's okay. Perfect. So the first question we have is, where did you grow up and how did your youth influence your path and passion towards science? So I grew up on a farm uh, in the panhandle of Texas, actually a plant farm. So we grew corn, soybeans, wheat. Um, and um, honestly, I didn't necessarily have any pressures to even seek um, a college education, but I loved uh, the farm itself. And actually, when I was in fourth grade, with the help of my grandfather and my mom, I started a chicken farm and um, really mostly just for pleasure. Um, but that, I would say, spurred my interest in biology uh, by you know hanging around and just watching the whole process of chicks being born. And um, ultimately, when I was in high school, I, I realized that science was my favorite subject. And so I set out uh, with really no understanding of what a research career could be. I initially started college uh, relatively nearby um, on a basketball scholarship, and I was studying uh, pre-med. Um, my first year in college, I took a histology class, and I became really enamored with the structure of organs uh, and particularly also uh, with white blood cells on a blood smear and decided I was fascinated uh, by leukocytes. And that class is probably a, a, a turning point for me in, in terms of choosing uh, to pursue research uh, rather than uh, actually uh, becoming a physician. That makes sense. And so if you don't mind um, me asking, where did you study? And then kind of, can you tell us the progression of how you ended up in immunology specifically? Yeah, so I studied a, a actually kind of a hop skip. You know, so this place that I took a basketball scholarship at Wayland Baptist University, and they didn't really have uh, uh, coursework that would drive me in this area that I became really interested in, like leukocyte trafficking and the biology there was more ecological. And honestly, like even um, people were stuffing rattlesnakes. <laughs> so I ended up leaving and I, I, I spent one year at a college in Arkansas. Um, and there I was specifically remember that I had realized from my freshman year that I was interested in biology and in leukocytes. So I had this book 
um, um, that um, I um, was reading in the laundromat on leukocyte trafficking. So sitting there while my laundry is tumbling in the dryer, I was starting to read about how leukocytes crawls between endothelial cells to get out of blood and into tissues. And I just thought it was super fascinating. So I requested to take a, um, a, a, a course that I designed myself, like a self-study course in immunology because there was no such offering uh, at the university at the time, so I, I did that. Um, later on in the third and fourth year of my undergraduate uh, education, I actually made it to the East Coast where I had long wanted to be. Uh, and um, I went to Temple University in Philadelphia. And there I did not study immunology, uh, but I continued my uh, biology training and got an undergraduate degree in biology. Uh, but I remembered my love for leukocyte trafficking. Um, and so when I went to do a PhD, I focused on that. It's really that kind of first love, um, um, you know, scenario. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I feel like that's maybe a similar story for, to a lot of people that we've um, spoken with about kind of their path. It starts at a pretty young age. Um, so one question about kind of your influence on your career is, um, is there someone in particular um, that you can kind of pinpoint as the greatest influence on your career? I think it's hard to point to a single person. Um, actually, I gave a lecture at AAI a few years ago, a distinguished lecture, and I um, put out a slide of the people I feel like influenced me the most. And I, ca I came up with a, a handful of people. I mean, I think we we're influenced by many people at different times. I, I think the first person who really uh, influenced me was Ralph Steinman, who later went on in 2011 to win the Nobel Prize for his discovery of dendritic cells. So he uh, um, turned out to be a co-mentor for me during my postdoc uh, uh, raising. And it was really, really influential, both scientifically as well as personally, and just really kind of from an encouragement standpoint. But later on, I also, um, so I moved to Mount Sinai when I started my first lab and um, individuals there, Miriam Murad in particular was one person who uh, started her lab right next to my lab just a few years after I arrived. And that was such a fantastic period, I think, that uh, had a huge influence on, on and positive trajectory uh, for my career. Um, and, and there were uh, other people who uh, came in um, who made major contributions. Melody Swartz, who's now at University of Chicago, uh, influenced me by starting really the process of thinking, how do molecules move through spaces of tissues? Um, and so we began to collaborate. Um, and right now we connect our, our leukocyte work with, in fact, uh, lymphatic trafficking uh, uh, influenced by uh, Dr. Schwartz. And we've even started to think about lipoproteins. My lipoprotein uh, influence and sort of uh, go-to person is Mary Sorcy Thomas, and she's at the Medical College of uh, Wisconsin. Um, and two other people I want to mention, actually, are, are Jean-Frédéric Columbell, who was also at uh, Mount Sinai. And just before I moved to Washington University, he got me really interested in moving into gut um, and thinking about trafficking of leukocytes and molecules from the gut in the context of inflammatory bowel disease. And, and you know, we interacted really kind of only briefly, but the level of enthusiasm he had for what we were doing, even though it was outside of 
of his clinical area, you know, really brought us to that uh, topic. And so it's really um, uh, wonderful to have those kinds of interactions. And then here at WashU, one of my uh, really close colleagues is Darren Zinzelmeyer, who uh, um, established imaging uh, and intervital imaging uh, in my laboratory uh, and is on the faculty here. And, and he and I now are, work closely together as uh, partners in running the lab. So it's kind of like a group of six people, uh, I would say, uh, who really have, at, for different reasons and at different times in my career, major influence uh, and yeah. made it a lot of fun. Sure, that's great. Um, so I have uh, kind of a slightly off course question for you. Uh, you did mention a lot of women um, as you were just kind of sharing with your career influencers. And as a woman in science, can you share a little bit about some of your experiences? Yeah, you, you know, it's a complex uh, question in a way, because I wouldn't even be in science if I think I had not grown up in a scenario where as a girl who loves a farm, I was not seen as a person who could take on that career, right? As a farmer in no way, while it looks like, you know, if, um, a, a missed opportunity, I'm glad it was a missed opportunity because I ended up in something I think much richer. Um, but, you know, early on in my career, I, I have to say that although I was aware that women were, um, sometimes underestimated or dismissed, it didn't bother me that much. And I was just there really just doing what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, I will say though, that when I began to mention all the women who influenced me around the time I started my own laboratory, I saw how valuable it is to interact with other women, uh, to really to stay encouraged and also to deeply enjoy doing science. Um, it, it can happen, you know, uh, in other ways, but, but for me, having a close connection to, for example, Mary Murad's lab, while we were also having kids and raising kids at the same time as, um, you know, sharing a lot of science is really, really fantastic and in a very positive way. Um, as I've been around longer, I, I have also started to feel, um, um, concerned about limitations that women face. And I, I, I'm not 100% sure how to, uh, to better that outcome. The other day, in fact, I was just listening to um, Ann Richards' uh, speech at the Democratic National Convention in 1988. And that's around the time I was finishing high school. And uh, she was the governor of Texas, so very um, you know, much uh, from my own upbringing. And, and I realized that around that time, you know, we were really, uh, women, I think we were imagining that we're moving ever and ever forward in terms of what we might achieve uh, um, um, in the coming years. And now it's more than 30 years later, and I, I, I sometimes worry that we're moving a bit backwards. But it also might be the case that as I became more senior in science, um, I started to see um, the complexity of being, you know, underestimated or dismissed. In the beginning, um, it was not so problematic because I kind of felt like, oh, I'll just show you, you know, in a way being underestimated meant I could actually get a hold of resources that I, you know, nobody thought I would do anything with. And so it, it was it was possible to take it as a positive, but it does get old after a while of once you have set um, 
um, you know, really shown that you can uh, uh, keep up with anybody, you know, in science that um, you still feel as though I do certainly feel as though women are underestimated and we're kind of, you know, hitting a plateau for uh, for leadership roles or for real influence. Um, and so it, I, I'm trying to stay positive, but also I actually have to often just retract in the science because the science is really fun and it doesn't look at gender when it comes down to actual experiments. Absolutely. Data does not discriminate. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So based on, I mean, what you've spoken about and, and shared um, from your experience, um, you've mentioned that this potentially can become an institutional issue where um, leadership is involved and promotions are involved. How do you think academic institutions and their employees, leadership, um, other people at the table, how can they change their practices to promote gender equality in science? Well, I do think that often very high leadership is um, perhaps hypercritical about, or let's say hypersensitive about being criticized uh, for their roles um, uh, in um, promoting progress uh, in women's areas. And, you know, even like a year ago, I wrote an article in the Journal of Experimental Medicine on this topic and felt that talking with leadership would be uh, a useful end to coming up with solutions. Um, but now I, I have come to believe that really the real change happens at, on two levels. One of them is at the level of the people that you're around every day. And now I look back at my early years and I realize I wasn't necessarily looking at what the institution was doing so much as my very close and neighboring colleagues, what other women around me, how we created a community for each other. And that was very, very positive. And I still think that that's really important. Now institutions should, and I believe can uh, create infrastructure that supports women, you know, all the way from, you know, well-being to, you know, actual infrastructure around childcare and, breastfeeding and promoting community between women. I, um, I would love to see that happen. I, I think that it goes so far beyond institutions though. I also play roles um, at, you know, in grants groups. And I, I am sad to see, you know, the, the, the relatively low fraction of women, particularly perhaps after COVID, you know, who are, um, who are on these panels and whose grants are coming forward. So I, um, um, and that's beyond the institution. So I, I think that the issues to be addressed are, are um, critical to, you know, critical changes need to happen at the institutional level, exactly how to promote those in the most positive manner without actually moving backwards, which is my fear, um, is, is unclear to me, uh, but it does also at the same time go beyond the institution. Maybe, maybe it really is un, uh, a lot to do with unconscious bias. Um, yeah. You know, I, I do have a lot of colleagues who I feel like have real intent to uh, support women, but still might be um, the people who, um, who, you know, when they make openly critical comments about others in, in, in groups, it might, in fact, be more, op more often than not women. And it's very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think an, a lot of people aren't intentionally going out to 
um, produced these biases, but somehow ingrained in our institutions and our culture even um, that these biases come out um, without even realizing it and that the intent behind it is not malicious or to discriminate in any way, but that it's just sort of ingrained in, in all of us and not just, you know, non-women in science. Even women in science don't even realize sometimes the effect that they have on other women. Yes, I do agree with that um, very much so. And, and then how to, you know, how, how to correct it is, um, uh, is still mysterious. Um, uh, to me, um, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I think it, it's widely thought that increasing women's visibility in leadership roles is one answer, and maybe that is true. Um, it's something that I personally have struggled with. I, I, I am attracted to these, uh, the complexity of this problem and very much would like to see it uh, um, move forward in a positive way. But at the end of the day, I also um, believe that what I really want to do is science. And maybe that's actually where ultimately uh, women's success will play out, you know, in the laboratory and success in the laboratory. And that sometimes these other roles that we are, um, you know, talking about actually distract from that potentially. Um, I do find it interesting that when uh, I, I, I worry that women in leadership roles are often also highly constrained um, uh, in the con uh, in the context of the of their institution uh, to actually make change. And so, again, for me, that has um, led to the thinking that maybe the best use of my time is to to do science and to train scientists, which is really fun and ultimately, albeit perhaps slowly, makes change in the community. Absolutely. So this leads right into my next question. Um, What advice would you give to young scientists, people that you're training, but also others? Um, We've got a lot of audience members that are young scientists and pursuing a career in academia and research. Um, what advice would you give to them as they embark on their journey into academia? One would be, you know, take all of this one day at a time. Try to set your anxieties aside. It is, it's really easy to get anxious about whether or not you, you know, your career will progress, you know, and um, no one can see that. But I do think that uh, if, you, if you follow what you want to do and what you love, then um that um, makes it possible to set anxiety aside and the tension associated with the career. Um, and, and I think it fosters success. For myself, uh, it does help to remind, you know, to, on a continuous basis, I remind myself of really what did I expect when I entered this career and uh, what have I done? Uh, and I've, you know, many ways, I, I think I've gone a lot farther than I ever thought. I, in the beginning, I really just wanted to be able to keep doing science and win enough, you know, grants to actually keep my salary moving forward and some interesting experiments going on. Um, so um, I, that that has helped me uh, in, in um, you know, Uh, I think, um, just uh, not feeling overwhelmed. So that would be follow your passion. I know it's cliche, but it's really a great (laughs) uh, um, um, 
approach to life, I think. And, it, and, it, and that means at the same time that you don't have to follow a formula. Um, I, I really do feel like, you know, if, define it, what it is that you want to have happen. You know, if you want low intensity, high intensity, or, you know, this or that particular topic, um, um, let it be your decision. Absolutely. I mean, with that, I just really want to thank you for your time and your insights. Um, it really was a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here. And with that, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Real Science and that you'll tune into future episodes where scientists just like you answer questions about their life, their work, and share insights into what it's like to be doing real science. Don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>